Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Astra Taylor. Her three films have all explored philosophy and ideas, an unusual territory for documentary film. The first was Zizek, about the philosopher Slavoj Zizek. The second was Examined Life, profiling nine contemporary thinkers. And her newest film, opening in theaters this month, is called What is Democracy? For some reason, I I think I I would just personally like to see more films about ideas in the world, so I, I'm making them. What is Democracy was filmed in 2016 in the lead-up to Donald Trump's election. Astra conducts conversations with an eclectic set of thinkers covering topics from Plato to modern immigration. She also talks to regular people about democracy, Miami students, Syrian refugees, and Trump supporters. She ponders the meaning of democracy and the threats against it. Here is Cornell West talking about democracy's challenge to deliver civil rights for racial minorities. If the majority of Americans were to vote in 1954 for school integration, it never would pass. What's fascinating about my own tradition, Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Hamer and the others, the radical Democrats coming from the chocolate side of town, coming from beneath American democracy, coming from the enslaved and the Jim Crow and the Jane Crow, is that we still held on to notions of democracy, but they were democratic critiques of the truncated democratic practices in America. So we're still wrestling with Plato's challenge. Plato's challenge will never go away, will never go away, because the fascist possibilities of any any democratic experiment are always there. I don't care which part of the world you're talking about. Often while watching Astra's films, I want to consult books for further reading. This time, she's writing her own book on the subject called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. It comes out this spring. Besides being a filmmaker and an author, She's also an activist who helped create the Debt Collective. More about that later. And she's a musician who performs with her partner Jeff Mangum in the band Neutral Milk Hotel. We sat down in August 2018 before her film was set to premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. I started by asking her how she navigates such a multifaceted career. You know, I, I sometimes wrestle with the moniker filmmaker, actually, because that is, a, that is a verb to me. It's an action, and it's something that I don't do all the time. So I'm someone who has made films and may make films in the future, but it's not, it's not my daily practice. Um, and my films are informed by the fact that it's not. So this movie was cooked up um, in the wake of being 
part of Occupy Wall Street, so really throwing myself into activism. But I was actually writing the proposal for it in the back seat of the Neutral Monk Hotel tour van after being on the road for two years and really thinking, I'm tired of being in a band. I want, I want to do something different. I want to get my hands dirty making a movie again and feed my mind. Can you just explain what your <laughs> band uh, experience is? So in the band, I, I played guitar. I played the accordion, which is a very fickle instrument. I have to say, I'm, I'm grateful to not be getting up there every day with an amplified accordion, hoping to not hit one of the many buttons, you know, the wrong way, and also keyboards. So it was, you know, it's a, a great thing to be able to do to travel the world playing music. And, and that was um, 2012, 13, 14. So actually, in a lot of the places we visited, I would connect with local activists. I mean, I remember we went to Spain, and I went around to a bank occupation with um, uh, members of, of uh, the PA, you know, people who had been part of the Indignado movement. Um, so it was also an excuse for me to sort of meet people and suss things out. I used tour to do that. So you're um, interviewing music and activism. On the activism side, what were you doing? So on the activism side, I run something called the Debt Collective, which is the debtors union. So just like we have labor unions, which are right now you know under attack, the idea is that there's power in numbers. And so many people are indebted right now, the majority of American citizens. We know that the student debt crisis is out of control, that the lack of universal health care means that people are in debt for medical bills. So the idea is that if debtors aggregate their debt, it's a source of leverage. So we organized the country's first student debt strike um, that launched in 2015. We've won $600 million of debt cancellation from the federal government. We're in a battle right now with Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education. So it's this idea that we can open up new a new avenue to fight inequality that complements you know labor labor organizing that complements all sorts of racial justice organizing because debt um, the predatory aspects of debt tend to disproportionately impact communities of color and so it's you know that's also something that uh, that's also a project that had its seeds in you know 2011 in the Occupy movement when when you know it was the wake of the financial crisis and people were saying the banks got bailed out we got sold out and so what do you do how do you actually build economic power for the 99% so that's something i've been very involved in building this union which now has a staff and has members all over the country and it is, started as your idea it, it was sort of one of these ideas that percol it percolated it was a group concept um, but yeah but um, but i've you know i and Maybe five other people have sort of been at the helm and really driving this, and now we have a membership and we're we're growing. And we also launched something called the Rolling Jubilee, which was um, which took off in 2012, which was basically a mechanism by which we could buy debt on the secondary market and erase it. And so we have um, used that to erase hundreds of millions of dollars of medical debt and uh, tuition debt for people. And in fact. Uh, consumer advocates who have pursued judgments against predatory debt collectors have used our mechanism to actually um, erase portfolios of debt. That, so explain exactly yes, how that works. How that, do you erase debt? Then yeah, we'll get to talk yeah, about films. Yeah, so, I mean, well, debt is part of the film. It's a sort of subterranean theme, but it's there. So our debt, debt, is, debt is an asset. That's how the economy works. And it's an asset that is bundled and traded and you know, sold at a profit or sold at a loss in some cases. And you know, what we were trying to illustrate 
to the public was the fact that that debt is a commodity, that it's a it's something that people get rich off of. And in fact, oftentimes the people calling you on the phone saying, you know, you you owe this money from an old credit card bill or a utility bill or, or a medical bill, they actually aren't people who offered you a service at all. They're a bro they're somebody who bought the portfolio from a broker. You know, you don't owe them anything on some level. And they usually paid a fraction of the actual um price that they're trying to, to get from you. And they break all sorts of laws and intimidate people. And, and they're rather, it's a rather, you know, it can get to be quite a bottom feeding sketchy enterprise. But what we did was essentially enter that market and bought the portfolios that a debt collector might buy. And we were the first group to ever do that and to buy debt with the aim of abolishing it as opposed to collecting on it. And we had to devise a whole new tax theory of why that was uh, and not just a legal thing to do, but something that wouldn't cause any tax implications. It actually was quite a complicated maneuver. And, and you know, in part of the time, I had a very simple aim. And, you know, I don't know if everyone involved shared this, but I kind of wanted there to be a sort of concrete coda at the end of Occupy Wall Street in New York, where you could say, well, look, this movement happened, but, you know, it it erased hundreds of millions of dollars of debt for people. And what we sent these beautiful letters out to people, strangers, from all over the country, got these letters in the mail that was that basically said, "This is a no strings attached gift." You know, we don't believe that your pain should be a source of profit. You know, we don't believe that because you had to go to the emergency room that you should be hounded on the phone by a debt collector, right? Um, and many of those people are now in our union. So it was this was part of this wave um, that I was caught up in. Uh, that coincided with being in the band and also coincided the the other thing I do is write. And so I also had released this book called The People's Platform, which is a was a political economy of the internet that was essentially asking, you know, how could we truly make the internet a democratic platform, right? Because there are all these hyped Silicon Valley claims that the internet would be democratizing and and, you know, spread wealth and prosperity and free speech across the land. So these were all the things that are sort of percolating as I put together the proposal for this for this film. So this is interesting for me to establish that you've really done the work of uh, rolling up your shirt sleeves and um, and uh, getting your hands dirty with activism. Uh, because if someone was just to see your film, uh, it's, it's very much a film of ideas. Um, it's a film about philosophy, but these two things are connected in your life experience. Yeah, I mean, they're so connected in my life experience. And I, th- I think part of why the film, well, I mean, for some reason, I want to make films about ideas. I don't really know why that is, but the films I've made have been like that, right? So I made Zizek about the, the um, Marxist Lacanian philosopher Slava Zizek. I was making that back, back in 2003, so a long time ago. Then I made Examine Life, which is a series of walks with philosophers. For some reason, I I think I I would just personally like to see more films about ideas in the world, so I, I'm making them. But I also think I have a different perspective than a lot of social justice filmmakers in the sense that I I'm I'm a bit skeptical about the sort of impact or utility of films yeah. in terms of social change. I think you have to do the work, so that's why I've devoted so much energy and um, fundraising capacity and and thought and and effort um, to the organizing side, because I think ultimately, if you want to change things, you have to organize people into a into a social block and try to find the levers of power as best you can. And and, you know, yeah, do the work of democracy. Film is 
for me, a place, you know, it's a sort of creative medium. So I think, and I love ideas, I love philosophy, and I love political theory. And one of the contradictions of democracy is that it is, that it is both thought and action. So for me, a movie is a, is a great place to experiment with trying to express that, that tension. So uh, this new film, What is Democracy?, is being made in parallel with you working on a book that's yet to come out that's called Democracy Might Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. So what's the relationship between the book and the film? They're sort of sisters, I guess, because um, because they stand on their own and they're, they're, they're different. I mean, I think the book... But they borrow each other's clothes. Yeah, they borrow each other's clothes and, you know, you sort of use the transcripts. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to be working on a book alongside a documentary film because there's so much that gets cut that you might love for some reason, but it just doesn't serve the narrative. It's just, you know, maybe somebody sneezed while they're saying something great or it started to rain. So, um, you know, I did a companion book with Examine Life of all of the extended interviews with my subjects, and that book has had a, a life it's taught all the time. And so I think I had this idea that they were – they were complimentary. But the book is me. The book is me sort of saying directly, um, you know, what I think and and wrestling in an even more sort of analytic way with the sort of framework um, and some of the framework that sort of informs the film but isn't ever made explicit. So thinking about democracy as these eternal tensions or paradoxes, these things that we have to keep in balance. Um, and so the film, yeah, the film is a place where you know, I'm I'm really playing with ideas and looking at history and looking at the history of political thought. Um, the film, you know, I, I wanted to create space for other people to speak and think. And so while it's obviously um, very much my point of view and has a point of view um, and is sort of my journey, on the other hand, I, ne- I don't just voice it over and explicitly tell the audience what it is that I take from the interviews, right? Or what my answer to the question of what is democracy might be. Um, and and I think that was the right approach for a film because in a film you're talking to other people and I want it, you know, and, and democracy, you know, radically simplified is the idea that, you know, everybody matters. And so the film does try to create space for other voices. So uh, a spoiler alert, you actually don't have an answer to the question, <laughs> uh, what is democracy? And uh, one of the um, aspects of the film is coming at this from many different ways and, and wrestling with the concept of democracy. Uh, you know, democracy is something that's associated with all kinds of uh, good things uh, in society, but democracy is also the system that elected Adolf Hitler and uh, elected Donald Trump. Um, and and I wonder how you personally grapp with, grapple with your feelings about democracy, you know, in light of those outcomes? I mean, those outcomes are really serious. They, that's, that's the, those are some of the problems with democracy. And, you know, the film, what the film does is it says, you know, that, that problem isn't new. It goes back to Plato. So the founding text of political theory is the Republic by Plato. And, you know, one of its core themes is the problem of the demagogue. And, and the problem with democracy being that people will be swept up by unruly passion and, and a sort of, you know, ignorance and get behind these leaders who say that they're going to serve them, but ultimately don't. 
And so democracy is inherently flawed and that this dynamic will always tip it over into tyranny. And, and you know, so part of the film is establishing this time, this long time horizon, right? So we're in this, we are in a moment of profound political crisis. And yet these dynamics have been playing out for millennia. Um, so, you know, it, the fact that I don't present an answer to the question, what is democracy is, you know, in... It's partly um, a, a desire to keep things um, open and to recognize the sort of tension in the concept itself. But I, th I think it's also because, you know, I'm trying to make a movie that speaks to the political crisis, but that is a philosophical movie and not a propaganda movie. And maybe that's because I'm an activist, so I do a lot of propaganda in my life, <laughs> trying to propagandize for my causes. Um, the historian Richard Hofstetter, in his book Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, says that an intellectual is someone who can turn anything into a question. We just love questioning things, and we live for ideas and not off of them, and that there's this the pleasure of the inquiry. And, you know, even though this is a depressing topic and there's actually a lot of suffering in the film, I am trying to embody that philosophical mode of turning things into questions, trying to see them from other angles, and presenting that sort of intellectual, um, that intellectual mode of engagement. I mean, what and what into your question, like, well, what do I actually think of democracy? I think the film actually made me much more, um, much more enthusiastic about democracy. I think the film, in a way, was born of ambivalence about the term. I mean, I if I look back, like. Five, and ten, five or ten years ago. I mean, democracy meant nothing to me. That word seemed so sold out. You know, who said that word? You know, George Bush Jr., right? Um, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a word that spoke to me. Words like justice spoke to me or um, equality or liberation, but definitely not democracy. And I think through the reading I've done and the um, filming I've done and the writing I've done, I've actually come, I've come back to the side of democracy. And I think that some of these troubling aspects of it can be mitigated when you make democracy more, um, more robust and more substantial. And there are powerful interests that don't want us to do that, and they've been around for a long time. I'm curious of all the interviews uh, you did, if there's one that stands out as like most rewarding or unexpected or helping to influence your thoughts? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, most of, you know, I think like what was the most difficult interview? It was probably speaking to the, um, you know, middle school kids who when I first showed up at their school just were not having this, you know, uncool Canadian lady <laughs> walk in with a camera crew and talk to them. Um, Where was this? That was in uh, in Miami, in Overtown. Um, so that that was that one was a challenge, and then they warmed up. Teachers and the principal don't really care about what our opinions and what we have to say because at the end of the day they're still going to get their check. That's their favorite word or line. At the end of the day, whatever you do, I'm still getting paid, so it don't matter if you get an F or an A. Did they say that to y'all? Yeah. yeah. Some interviews have paid off over time in the sense that I've established relationships with the people. So the Syrian and Afghan refugees are people I'm really still in touch with and following their um, their 
travails since I filmed with them in 2015 has been incredibly eye-opening and totally changed the way I see immigration and the refugee You were interviewing them in Greece. I interviewed them in Greece right at the apex of the refugee crisis, right around the time of the EU-Turkey deal that got a lot of press, just seeing how hard it's been for them. You know, that that actually was the beginning of a saga that was so much more challenging on some level than than the than the the journey you know over miles and over water and over land this I, this what it means to try to adapt and settle into a place that is undergoing this sort of right wing reaction because they've made it to Austria and to Germany respectively so that that was very very interesting um and i also was Another aspect that I would I was struck by the fact that, you know, interviews even that I did back in 2015, um, what was interesting is the closer interviews got to the 2016 presidential election, actually the less insightful they were because there was something about the overwhelming sense of emergency and crisis that the election of Donald Trump created that, that actually, you know, kind of caused this um, – this blinkeredness, right? Like you almost, you can't, it, people couldn't think in that space. So I, what, what's kind of interesting to me is how, you know, interviews I did before when that was sort of a distant um, possibility or, or not a possibility at all, you know, they still speak to this moment because some a lot of our problems are, are the same as they were, you know, during the heyday of the Obama era. It's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like in the films that I'm seeing this year in 2018, we're getting a little bit more perspective on 2016 than I think we had a year ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just you know, so like a you know, interviews. I didn't I didn't film past the election. That was sort of the end end of the shooting. But there was like this sort of yeah, there was this almost um, gravitational pull that the closer it got to that date, the like less the less so, insightful. <laughs> It's not a big part of the film, but you do interview some uh, Trump supporters, yeah. um, and I wonder what that experience was like. That experience was really, um, it was really interesting, actually, because um, well, I interviewed some quite, quite always before the election when they sort of seemed like curiosities to me, <laughs> and yet alarming in the sense that there were so many of them, and uh, they were so enthusiastic about this billionaire who they believed would be able to buy his way right past all of the pathologies of the money-based American electoral system. So, And somehow speak more for the people in, in their rhetoric. Yeah, and to speak more for, you know, speak more for the people. So, you know, I, my, I think doing the film gave me a bit more of a sense that his victory was possible than I would have had if I had just stayed in my liberal bubble. Um, I, you know, I wrestled with how to show, they're a very small part of the film, but I wrestled with how to show a Trump supporter. And and I, I ended up settling on a group of college students who are, you know, affluent, but not amazingly wealthy. This was in North Carolina. Yeah, in North Carolina. And who, you know, I, I think they study political science. And, and part of it, I wanted to show that um, they were not part of the, you know, they're not part of this sort of they weren't they didn't fit the stereotype, right, of the sort of like super working class, um, uh, uh, you know, white um, 
you know, hard hat or something like they were, they're affluent, they're educated, and they don't want to fall. And they don't, you know, they want to be able to keep climbing. Um, and, and that, um, I don't know, it, you know, it, I really, I sat with them for hours and really tried to have a real conversation and to see where there was commonality. And on some level, we could find some things to agree on on economic policy, but the issue of race just came up so fast. So I kind of tried to edit it to reveal that, right? They sort of say things that are, you go, okay, I understand you were disaffected. And then just this this underbelly of, of xenophobia just like came out and was well, so one of the things powerful. that they're saying is that <laughs> when they look at the U.S. government, they see them giving a lot of handouts to yeah. non-white people, yeah. uh, immigrants, and that essentially white people are having to fend for themselves. Well, and I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I really, I'm amazed. I would put the camera, I would interview people on the street, and it was like white people were just would be like two minutes before they would say, I'm not racist, but it was like a compulsion. Like, for instance, if your parents make a certain amount of money, you're not going to get help from the government. But if you're below a certain amount and like you're a different race, you're gonna get help. Versus if you're a person that's lived here your whole life and you're white, and I'm not trying to be racist, cause I'm not, you're gonna, if you are a different nationality, you're going to get help versus as somebody who has grown up here, who's lived here, who has, you know, worked since they were 16 and your parents make above the FAFSA amount of money, we're, we're not going to get money. And I think that that's bullcrap. And I, I actually had to tone back and tone back and tone back some of the interviews because I think even now the feedback on that scene is that it's too it's too over the top, right? And I, I'm just like, wow, if I had really edited it to reflect the truth of what people said, you know, it would just seem like a total vice stunt. So what seems <laughs> too over the top is actually your efforts to yeah, scale yeah, it back. Yeah, to scale it back. The film does have a lot of theoretical conversation, but it continually ties it back to what's happening on the ground. Um, you described immigration uh, as being a, a big theme. And I wanted to ask you about a theorist that you interviewed uh, named Wendy Brown. First, can you just set up who Wendy Brown is? Yeah, Wendy Brown is one of the preeminent political theorists of our time. And so she was actually a student of Sheldon Wolin, who you know was a, a massive figure in that uh, tradition who wrote Politics and Vision. And she works these days specifically on the issue of sort of neoliberalism, but she's, yeah, she's someone I've admired for a long time. She's really brilliant. She teaches at um, the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and she was someone who, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to include in the film. So um, you have a discussion with her um, uh, in the course of t talking about democracy. She um, describes that democracy always has exclusions, like democracy is arrived at by uh, a group of people who can define themselves. And she, she says, we have to know who we is in that conversation. There are many people who think about democracy and want what they call global democracy or global citizenship. I'm skeptical. I think to have democracy, there has to be a we. You have to know who we the people are. Can't just be a kind of vague, universal thing. And I think it has to be bounded, because in order to 
govern ourselves, we have to know who the we is, who's doing the governing, and we have to know who the ourselves are and what their bounds or limits are. For us to say we're gonna engage in a democratic process, we have to decide who's in and who's out of that process. Democracy always has exclusions. They've almost always been premised on terrible forms of marking, stratifying, and, 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 and naming who's human and who's not human by gender, by race, today by the question of documentation, um, papers, and so forth. I'm not defending those, but I am defending the idea that democracy has to have bounds. It has to have a constitutive we. What, what did you take away from your conversation with her? I think, so I think Wendy is, is right that so democracy, you know, distilled to its essence is the people have the power or rule. And so there's, you know, the question of who, who is the people and, you know, how do they rule? Um, I think there's also the question of where and where do they rule, which is why this issue of territory and place and the, and the, the, the tension between the local and the global is so prominent in the film. So, you know, one of why democracy is intellectually hard in part because the people is an abstract concept. So you could, you know, if you live in a monarchy, you can point to the picture of a king and say, okay, that's the guy who makes the decisions or a queen, if that's the case. But who, what do you point to to show that the people rule? Like there's literally nothing. So you have something that doesn't really exist making decisions. And, you know, I think Wendy, Wendy's, to me, Wendy is, is right. I mean, this idea of a global democracy is, maybe it sounds good, but it's it's conceptually incoherent. And and the challenge, I think, of our time is figuring out how do we set up boundaries, set up the, the lines to demarcate a community in a way that's not awful, that's not racist, that's not misogynist, that's not xenophobic or exploitative. Um, because, you know, I... You know, I believe that people should have a say over the decisions that affect their lives. You know, should I be telling, um, you know, a teacher in Italy how to run their school? No, I'm not part of that community. I should be excluded from it. I don't live there. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know the history. So what she's saying is kind of shocking because it's in the context of exploring our global dilemmas. And yet on a, on, and yet it's to me, it's quite realistic and, and true. And the thing is that we're caught in this debate right now between, you know, and the forces of, of hatred who want to, you know, close off America from the world. And, and, you know, the film very much makes the case that we have to have solidarity with people who are seeking asylum and refuge. But that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't mean that we can skip over this challenge of, you know, who gets, who should make decisions where. And, um, and right now we have, you know, very powerful people who aren't part of communities dictating social policy, you know, for people they don't know and they don't care about and they'll never meet. So I think there is this, this, um, uh, we do, yeah, we need, we need to grapple with this question of who the we is. And, um, and so I thought Wendy just put it in a very provocative way, which is why I included that, that part of the well, conversation. It kind of shows the way in which you can raise an idea, but then the next step of applying that idea is a much more painful and difficult yeah. process. So you can arrive at the idea that it's important for a democracy to maintain borders, um, but uh, 
then actually trying to maintain those borders when there are migrations of hundreds of thousands of people trying to escape war and famine and uh, and other disasters um, is a really difficult thing to implement. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing, I'm writing the challenge. Sorry, I'm writing the chapter right now on this issue of scale and the local versus the global, and I put it off to the very end because it's such an intractable dilemma. And I'm quite interested in the way I've, I've sort of gone into the weeds in this in, in the writing, and I need to pull it back, but in the way these local democratic um, experiments often have a sort of internationalist dimension. So, like, you can look at something um, like, um, you know, Occupy, which was around, these occupations were around the world, but they were very much rooted in a place at the same time they had sort of internationalist solidarity. And I think... You know, it's. I think this is, it's. It's the challenge of our time, and the film doesn't lie by giving an easy answer, right? How do you do? How do you have a sort of global, international, democratic consciousness while also understanding democracy has to be rooted in a place and in a specific community? Like there, there's no easy answer, and we have to experiment and learn from the past, and you know, fail and fail again and fail better, or whatever the cliche is. And for me, I guess you know, this is also part of the spirit of the film. It's like, why why make a film? Well, partly it was because I wanted to make a political film that was was not afraid of asking questions. And so I, you know, I don't have the sort of, you know, it doesn't pretend that it's sort of lifting the curtain, right? And telling you the secret history of how democracy is being suppressed or giving you the 10 point plan for the revolution. Um, it's It's honoring the complexity of the situation we're in and the challenges that lay ahead. The filmmaker Steven Soderbergh once said that every film pitch should end uh, with the words, ultimately, this is a film about hope. (laughs) And uh, I feel like there is a cliche about injecting hope into a documentary film, and yet there's uh, a real motive for it, you know, uh, People need hope, and um, and and I wonder how you think about the you know the role of of hope in your film. Well, I want to ask you: Did you think it was hopeful? Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I I mean I think that there's um, I think there's something that's hopeful about being stirred up by ideas. But at the end of the film, was it like a hopeful? It doesn't really end on a hopeful. An overwhelmingly hopeful note, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, and yeah. uh, and which is why I'm curious. Yeah. you know, how well, so you that was about it. that was purposeful. Because um, you know, it's it's something that I've been uh, thinking about with other uh, filmmakers, um, uh, especially in these times. Is like, do, you know, do, do we need another film that tells us how bad it is, or? Do we need a film that gets us up out of our chairs somehow and um, and rouses us yes. to action? I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, one is, you know, if you're going to make a film that is aiming at getting people out of their chairs and rousing them to action, you better be connected to social movements and know what it is you're connecting people to, and and be connected to something strategic. Otherwise, what are you what are you creating this energy for? Right? Is it just a sort of catharsis? You know, um, yeah, what is what is your 
connection to organizing? What What is your theory of change? What is your strategy? Um, so this... Which is interesting to hear you say because I think sometimes documentaries get knocked for being too prescriptive. That yeah. here's the environmental documentary and uh, in the credits, here's the website you're supposed to go to and here's the five-point plan of action. And sometimes documentaries will be criticized for being too programmatic in that way. Yes, well, and sometimes because sometimes the five-point point of action is just tweet. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not good organizing or it's not, you know, hard-hitting enough. Um, I wanted to make, so, you know, I started this film in 2014, 2015. And for me, you know, I I understood that a sort of political crisis could be on the horizon, but I also thought we were in a sort of moment, a sort of uh, a lull. I, I didn't know things would get so exciting. And I wanted to make a film that instead of ending with this big rousing protest and epic music and this idea that we can, you know, hold hands and march into a new world. I was like, what if you have a film where the spirit is more the day after, the day after the big march, the moment after the euphoria, when the challenge is, what do you do? That energy is dissipated, but the problem is still there. So it's not explicitly said in the film, but that was one reason I went to Miami, Florida. There's, you know, quite a few scenes shot there because it was that was the place after the murder of Trayvon Martin where Black Lives Matter sort of came to the forefront and community activists were really engaging with this question of well what do you do when media attention has moved on and um, and you're having a hard time actually pressuring elected officials to do anything right let's let's start there and and engage with the community um, instead of ending with the protest uh, so I didn't, I really was adamant that I didn't want to end the film with a sense of false hope, right? And with a kind of emotional string pulling. And, and I wanted the hope to be hard earned and the hope is in ideas and the hope is in people, you know, engaging with these issues over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years and, and not giving up on the struggle. So that was something. So I, I just wanted the hope to not be too easy, and um, and yeah, that was something that from the beginning I was I just really wanted it to end on a on a more ambivalent note, even if um, even if that might make some people unhappy. But to me, it's more honest, right? Because it's it's a, a daily practice. It's not going to get solved. And the goal isn't just to get the people we like in office and then go back, you know, to sleep politically. Right. It's it's um, it's something that has to be carried forward. It's something on the horizon that we're going to have to constantly be reaching towards. So this idea that you know there could be one epic cathartic um, action or, you know, a way to tweet ourselves into a real democracy just seems false to me. I want to thank Esther Taylor for speaking with me. Her new film, What is Democracy?, is being released in theaters by Zeitgeist Films. You should also look for her previous films, Zizek and Examined Life. If you're in New York City, we invite you to attend the Pure Nonfiction screening series at IFC Center. Every Tuesday night in February and March, 
We show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. The series was previously called Stranger Than Fiction, but this year we've renamed it Pure Nonfiction. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. I want to welcome aboard our new series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and give thanks to outgoing producer, Sarah Modo. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Department. Thanks to our team, sound recordists Anna Montgomery-Newts and Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.